Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Treason of Isengard. It is our 11th session here today. Um, okay. Sorry, I'm continuing to... I hate it when I can't figure out the solution to a problem, so I've been trying to solve the stupid problem of the audio feed in Facebook Live forever. Uh, I'm trying to get it to... I think it's not running through my earpiece. I'm trying to get... I don't even know how fa the Facebook... Like, there's no back end. I can't get into the uh, settings to tell it which audio to go through. I think it's still, even though I have my Bluetooth connected, I think it's not using it. Dang it! I'm not supposed to fix it! <sighs> it's okay. I'm going to keep trying different things. Um, anyhow, <laughs> sorry, everybody, as I continue trying to fidget with things. Good evening. So, uh, some quick updates about stuff. First, just to remind everybody, because we're almost upon it, this coming weekend, this same Saturday as is, is going to be our first regional conference in the, Mid in the Midwest, uh, like 36 hours from now, actually a little less than 36 hours from now, I'm going to be flying out to Iowa, my first ever visit to the fine state of Iowa, and uh, we're looking forward to our, our first ever Midwest regional conference. Um, it's going to be great. So uh, um, I'm really delighted. Uh, a lot of people appear to be uh, uh, able to come. We've got, uh, we're looking at about th uh, 50 or so uh, attending, which is great. Um, wonderful for a, uh, for an event like that, especially the first time we've ever done it. Um, still room, I think, for more. So, uh, uh, you know, don't, this is your, uh, your, your last chances. Um, Yana's wondering if, uh, did you hear rumors about a UK conference in the works? You might have heard, uh, fantasizing on, on my part, um, not to mention that of my children, uh, of doing a UK conference. <laughs> They're all in if we do that. Um, but, um, but I, I, okay, a Europe conference would be awesome, actually, and not all that hard to put together. Um, what we need is, uh, several of you who are over there in Europe and who could help out with this to just kind of get together and get in touch with us and we can, we can sort it out. I think we can probably make that happen. So, um, we can, um, let's totally, let's totally, let's totally work on this. I would, I, we, we, we really do need to do a, a Europe based gathering that should totally happen. Um, Anyway, so yeah, I just, I do wanted to invite you guys one more time if you're anywhere around the, if you're, if, uh, if, if Iowa is at all drivable to you, which as I said, I've learned in this process is a surprisingly large number of millions of people, uh, then, uh, I hope that you'll consider joining us out, um, uh, in, in Iowa this weekend. Uh, the details of the event and the registration form, go to signumuniversity.org, scroll down just a little bit, and you'll see uh, the uh, the link to our, our Iowa conference. So um, please do join us for that. Um, now, of course, we are in the middle, the very middle now, of our fundraising campaign. We're about halfway through our fundraising campaign now, and things have been great. You guys, have all, as always, have been so generous. Uh, our total... Uh, gifts and pledges so far is right around $34,000, uh, which is just fantastic. I'm, I'm, my, my goal is to see if we can get to uh, 40000 by the end of this coming weekend. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we can get. And then we'll do one last big push next week, the, the final Webathon, which is always a really fun event. That's one of the, the, the online events of the year in the, in the uh, Mythgard and Signum calendar uh, is our Webathon at the end of our campaign. And we're going to be doing that next Saturday. So Saturday the 14th 
uh, starting at noon Eastern time, we're going to be doing our we're going to be doing our our our, our webathon, uh, and for that there's going to be it's going to be great. There's going to be special guests and uh, uh, special class sessions and uh, and readings and giveaways and prizes and all kinds of uh, uh, great things that day. Um, always a fun day, as I say. Um, so now you may notice, by the way, that this year I've not been um, I've not been talking about a specific goal for our fundraising campaign. Um, this is because we just want to raise as much as possible. No, I'm kind of kidding. Actually, I'm not kidding. But, uh, but no, the reason, the reason for that is that the answer to that question, like what is our goal this year, is actually a little bit complicated. Um, it's, it's, there's more to it than just the simple naming of a particular number. Um, I'm going to be explaining the reason for that. Signum University is in a really cool place. Um, we are... You know, our theme this year uh, is growing into the future. I have my awesome, my awesome growing into the future mug uh, here, which is with my, 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 with my leaf by niggle, my leaf by niggle quotation on it. Uh, The one that you might have seen if you, uh, if you saw our, my uh, launch campaign launch video. Um, So uh, anyway, I, I, you know, we're we're at a really interesting uh, point in Signum's history. And I'm going to be explaining that. Look for uh, another YouTube video. There are going to be a couple of videos I'm going to be releasing on YouTube and, and we'll be linking to. Um, and I really want to, to kind of emphasize some stuff to sort of share what's going on at Signum and why it is we need your support. I mean, some of you may be uncertain about, like, what exactly do we need all this money for? Why are we, like, not content with $35,000, which is quite a lot, right? Um, I'm going to be explaining all that, what we spend the money on uh, that we get, what exactly our needs are, and where we're going from here, and how your help and support are going to be able to enable us to get uh, to where we want to go and what we'll accomplish if we get there. So uh, that stuff is going to be... uh, uh, is 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 going to be the stuff that I'm talking about in these next couple videos that I'm going to be releasing here over the end of this week and beginning of next week, leading up through uh, the webathon. So, um, just, so keep your eye out for that, and I'll I'll, I'll do some uh, do some explaining of those things. Um, so uh, and yes, uh, Takako, we are going to we will record the webathon that will be that will be available. So uh, no worries there. I know one of you, Julie, you were asking about uh, whether we were going to live stream uh, the uh, Iowa uh, moot. I'm not sure that we're. It is my goal, by the way. It's one of the things that I'm working on. It's kind of in development. Uh, is doing some more live streaming of events. I, that's a thing that uh, uh, that I would really like to be able to do more. Um, so I'm gonna. I'm not. I don't know that I'll be able to have uh, the stuff that I need, the gear that I need to really do that properly this weekend. Um, but when Texmoot comes around, Texmoot is going to be in January uh, down in Fort Worth, Texas, and I'm hoping by then to be able to do some live streaming. So. Um, uh, Tara, will the chicken run happen during the webathon? No, because that would be the entire webathon. Um, but it w- it shouldn't be too long. We did reach our fundraising goal for in- during my uh, Lotro marathon last weekend, so I am going, in fact, uh, to within the Lord of the Rings online game, uh, assume the form of a chicken and run as a chicken all the way from Mickledelving to Mordor and cast myself into the cracks of doom. I I've never been to Mordor before, so I will see it first through the eyes of a chicken, just like I did with Minas Tirith. Um, um, uh, those of you who don't play the game, just trust me. It's, uh, pretty cool, actually. Um, but, uh, anyhow, 
for those of you who do play the Lord of the Rings online, you're probably familiar with the chicken run subculture of Lotro. It's hard to explain if you don't. But anyway, it's pretty. It's a pretty cool tour uh, through the uh, um, uh, through the through the lands there. But anyway, yeah. So we're gonna um, we're gonna we're gonna do that at a separate time. We we don't have a date exactly for that yet, Tara. But we're gonna we're 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 working on that. I want to make sure Mordor is still very new. They just released the expansion recently, um, and they had to make some alterations to make sure that chickens could run in. So I want to make sure that it's it's open to chickens <laughs> before we make our schedule. Um, all right. Um, Excellent. So let's see. Um, yeah, Yana says he always thought a chicken walking to Rivendell was a perfect allegory for a hobbit walking to Mordor. Um, exactly. No, yeah, we we don't need the allegory anymore. It's just uh, just a chicken uh, walking uh, into Mordor. So uh, proving movie Boromir wrong once and for all. Um, okay. Excellent. Now, the last thing I wanted to announce related to the campaign, I wanted to remind you of something that I mentioned last week and which I want to uh, emphasize again, which is uh, the special uh, um, drawing that I am doing to thank those of you who are, uh, those of you Mythgard Academy regulars who are continuing your support um, of, uh, of, of this program, of the Mythgard Academy. So, uh, and I guess, so the way this is going to work, and I've set, set this up this year um, so that it works asynchronously, because I want to be able to include all of our wonderful listeners and all of our generous donors who are listening asynchronously. I know not everybody can make this particular time. Um, it's not, you know, I know that this broadcast doesn't come at a convenient time for everybody. I mean, it's not as easy, um, you know, not everybody has it as easy as Yana does, for instance. So um, I wanted to, you know, so I, again, I understand that many people uh, listen asynchronously. Uh, so um, anyway, I'm gonna, of course I'm teasing Yana. It's uh, what time is it? Four a.m. Four twenty-two a.m. for you, Yana. Uh, Yana is one of our one of our Iron Men over there uh, in on the in on on the Europe side. Anyhow, um, so so the way this is going to work, we've already opened uh, this drawing. Basically, anybody who makes a donation and who sends us an email to say that you want to sort of dedicate the 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 donation to the Mythgard Academy or sort of acknowledge the Mythgard Academy. All you have to do is send an email with Mythgard Academy in the uh, subject line or Treason of Isengard, whichever, um, in the subject line. And we will enter you into the Mythgard Academy drawing uh, for some special prizes that we're giving out to anybody who donates to support uh, this program. We opened that already last week. Several people have already have already entered. I know that many of you have given. Many of you have donated and not even sent us an email to enter a drawing. You totally should. We want to give stuff away and we want to show extra appreciation uh, for you guys. So um, so we're going to do that. So the email address, Rachel, thank you for asking. The email address to which you should send the email in question is donate at signumu.org. Donate at signumu.org. That's it. So just send an email, mention Mythgard Academy or Treason of Isengard. Uh, if you've already donated or if you have a recurring donation, uh, you know, that's already running or something like that, you know, please just 
it, that's fine. That counts. Totally counts. So just send us an email, and uh, you can enter the drawing. So what do you win? What is the drawing for? Okay, let me explain what the drawing is for. So, um, and I'm going to do the drawing in class next week, right? So next week is that next week will be the final. Mythgard Academy class that will be happening during the campaign, right? So we'll do some separate drawings and stuff at the Webathon, but that's its own thing. This is the special Mythgard Academy drawing, and we're going to do it next week in next week's class. And so we're going to give away four total prizes. Uh, the two uh, minor but still cool prizes are going to be, we're going to be, we're giving away books. I love giving away books. So we're going to give away lots of books this year. Um, so we're going to give, so the, the two prizes will be, we will give the winner a choice of a book that they would like. Now, we encourage you to choose if there's... Is there a book that we've done in the Mythgard Academy that you don't have, that you would like to have so that you can read it and then, you know, go back and, and, and listen to the Mythgard Academy class that you missed? That would be really cool. Um, if not, if there's an, if there's, is there a Tolkien book out there that you don't have? Um, one really cool choice, I thought, actually, one of the... We, we did this same kind of giveaway during our Lotro Marathon last weekend, and uh, uh, one of the people asked for the... Uh, the the new Hammond and Skull edition of the Adventures of Tom Bombadil with all the original poems in it, and I was like, oh, that's a really cool choice. Anyway, so we're gonna um, we're gonna give away a a book of your choice, basically. So we'll we'll be in touch with you. Uh, you can tell us what book you want, and we're not only just gonna give you the book. See, this is the other cool thing. In addition to the book, you're also going to receive, we will also send you in the mail a book plate that you can put in the book that we give you. Um, and on the book plate, I'm going to be making up the book plates for you. And, uh, you know, so I'll give some sort of thoughts. If it's a Mythgard Academy book, you know, one that we've done a, 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 a session on, that is, um, I'm going to, I'll, you know, sort of like make some comments from some of my favorite parts of our class discussions and everything, some of my favorite sort of memories about that book and our discussions. Um, you know, otherwise, I'll just, you know, sort of mentioned some of my favorite parts, some thoughts that I have about the book. Just, you know, something to sort of customize it for you uh, and, you know, to kind of commemorate the occasion and your gift. Um, so that's... Uh, so, the, so the two... Two of our four prizes are going to get... are going to get those books. The, the second prize... Right, those are like... The third and fourth prizes are one book. The second prize is... The same thing, but more of it. You're going to get three books, right? So we'll give you three, your three books of your choice. Um, or we, or maybe if you, instead, you want to get like a box set. Like say you don't, you know, there's like, is there is there a cool Tolkien box set you don't own? Or if you want to get three of the Mythgard Academy books, or, you know, are there three uh, elements of your Tolkien collection that you need to fill out? Whatever it is. Uh, again, we'll talk with you and we'll, uh, uh, we'll give you three separate books. Now, um, the grand prize... The grand prize is to double your vote, right? Because, of course, as you probably know, uh, Mythgard Academy, what books we do in this, in this series, the, you know, the, the, the books that we discuss are decided by you guys who... It's sort of... It's one of the ways in which... One of the other ways in which I like to acknowledge how much we owe to you guys uh, who help to support us and make this all possible, right? Um, so Mythgard Academy is designed from the beginning to say, hey, you guys are doing so much to support us, and I appreciate that so much. Um, I'm, I want to talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. Um, and it's, it's always been also sort of disproportional, right? That is to say... Um, you know, and, and this is in, in some ways, it's a little bit different for me, right? Cause usually I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I prefer 
to be democratic about things, right? To have, you know, everybody get an equal say and everybody contribute in. Mythgard Academy is not everybody gets an equal say, say because here I want to recognize, right? We, we really require a certain amount of funding in order to keep Signum and Mythgard going for another year. And there are some people who give a great deal and are a, a very, a disproportionately large factor in, uh, in making that happen. And so I want to give those people a disproportionately large say in what books we need, even if you, if you're able to, to, to give a lot and help, I mean, it's something that we really need, right? And we appreciate it super much, right? So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad to have, uh, to, give you a big say in what books we do so that uh, uh, you can, since you are making this programming possible uh, with your gifts. So, but the grand prize is that, so normally you get like one vote per dollar that you donate over the course of the year. So when you make a monthly pledge, for instance, that's multiplied by 12 and added up. And and that's the the total sort of number, the block of votes that you get uh, when we do our Mythgard Academy voting. The grand prize in our drawing is to double the weight of your vote, right? So that uh, no matter what it is, you'll get uh, you'll get double the vote. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cool. And this and these drawings are for a donation of any size, right? Again, these are just drawings that we want to thank everybody who has donated. So. Anyway, so that's how the drawings are going to go. We'll do the drawings next week uh, during our class session, and uh, uh, so you and any and so anytime any donation that comes in between now, well, really between the beginning and next uh, Wednesday, um, again, make the donation, send the email. We we do need to have received the emails by the time class starts next week, so that I have that list uh, to do our drawing from. Um, but uh, once we get that, uh, once we get that, we still have a week before that, so we're all set. All right. Um, So I think that... Oh, yeah, one last thing that I wanted to say, just uh, also thinking towards next week. Um, I would be... I would love to hear, and some of you have done this already anyway, uh, you know, when you've... You know, those of you who have sent in emails... um, I, I would love to hear if any of you wants to share, you know, like a, a kind of um, a kind of testimonial for uh, what, you know, Mythgard Academy has uh, sort of, uh, you know, been for you over the last few years since you've joined. Um, you know, that would uh, um, I, I would just love to hear. I mean, this is you know, campaign time is one of those times where I love to just kind of sit back and reflect on, you know, what this is that we've done together. And I know I, I have loved, uh, you know, spending my Wednesday evenings with you guys, uh, for the last few years. Uh, and, uh, I've been, uh, I have, I have, uh, really enjoyed getting to know some of you, uh, really well over the last few years. Um, so anyway, if this just, if this just wanted to kind of give the invitation, if there's something you would like to share, I would love to, uh, to to hear from you about that uh, sometime here in the next week because uh, I'd like to be able to share some of those. All right. That's it. Let's move on to our class discussion here today because we have a lot of ground, uh, a lot of ground to cover. Um, so tonight's class called Friendship and Betrayal uh, because we're going to be focusing on both of those two things, right? We're going to be looking at, we're going to be finishing up we, we were almost done with the Lothlorien stuff, but not quite. Um, so we have a little bit looking at the, uh, the, the, the breaking of the fellowship, but also the gift giving and stuff, the sort of the final version, well, the final to date versions, uh, of those we hadn't quite completed yet, but then 
look focusing on the development of the breaking and then especially how he moved forward with Sam and Frodo's story, right? Um okay, so um let's uh let's let's let let's move forward. Lots of cool Sam stuff tonight. All right. The Minas Tirith question. They debated long, but they came to no decision. Ingold was evidently torn between two things. His own plan and desire was to have gone to Minas Tirith, but now that Gandalf was lost, he felt that he could not abandon Frodo if he could not be persuaded to come. The others, to the others there was little choice, for they knew nothing of the... something, of the land in the south. Boromir said little, but kept his eyes ever fixed on Frodo, as if he waited for his decision. At length he spoke. If you are to destroy the ring, he said, then there is little use in arms, and Minas Tirith cannot help you greatly. But if you wish to destroy the Lord, then there is little use in going without force into his domain. That is how it seems to me. Okay. Um, now, the one thing about the Minas Tirith question, here I'm speculating a bit, or... Okay. I'm in that middle ground between there is clear evidence I can point to and I'm speculating wildly. That middle ground which is this is the impression that I have gotten uh, but uh, I'd have to construct my case really carefully. There's not like a specific passage I'm pointing to. Um, It's just this is what it's the, the, the sum of the things we've been reading seems to suggest to me. But I might be wrong. Okay. It seems that clearly Minas Tirith was the goal, right? Um, and this is something... I, I, I've been paying particular attention to this because it's an element of the published Lord of the Rings which always kind of puzzled me a little bit. That is, the, the Minas Tirith, like, do we go east or do we go west, debate that they're having at Parth Gala, right? Um, and I say that because, like, Ever since I was young, I've always kind of felt like, why are we talking about this? Like, am I the only one who thinks this is a dumb question? Why should they go to me? You know, like when Sam, when Sam says, you know, what's the good of ministerith, right? I'm always like, exactly, Sam, what is it? Why are we even deliberating over this, right? I mean, the quest is not to bring the ring to ministerith. The quest is to bring the ring to the cracks of doom, right? So, like, I... I the, why is this even such a difficult question uh, to come to? One thing that has seemed to me, um, one way in which I, I that has seemed a little clearer as we've been reading through the Treason of Isengard material, is the element, I think, that these earlier drafts have really driven home to me, is that the Fellowship of the Ring is not really designed to escort Frodo to the cracks of doom. The, what seems to be the initial intention of the, um, of the Fellowship of the Ring, not of the book, of the actual group of people, right, is to escort him from Rivendell to Minas Tirith. And presumably he's going to go on a loner with Sam uh, from there, or they're going to make some other plan. But this here, I, I mean, again, I don't, I mean, maybe there is one and I'm forgetting it, but I don't recall any specific passage that said that explicitly. But there are several things that um, 
that leave me with that impression. One, of course, is the way in which, remember in that early, um, uh, remember in that early draft of the Goadriel and Celeborn material, right? Um, when they, when, 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 first of all, like in that first meeting, they're like, and the time has come to depart, right? <laughs> when, when they're like, thank you for visiting Lothlorien on your way now, right? Then they're not staying there at all, right? Um, and the thing that they that she takes for granted, I'm pretty sure it's Gladriel speaking, the thing that she seems to take for granted is that, like, the fellowship is done, right? There's no, like, traumatic breaking of the, fe- the fellowship. It's like, welcome, you've arrived at Lothlorien, thank you. Now, we'll be escorting Legos and Gimli back to the, to the, like, she totally assumes it's now time for y'all to go your separate ways, right? Legos and Gimli obviously are going to be heading north. Aragorn and Boromir or Ingold or whatever, Elfstone they, and Boromir, they're going to be heading south, Right, um, Frodo and Sam, you'll be going on to Mordor. Merry and Pippin, dude, you guys shouldn't even have been here in the first place. I don't know what the heck to do with you. Right? So again, the, remember Galadriel said something quite like that. Um, so the, there never, there does not seem to have been the assumption, or even the the uh, it doesn't even really seem to be on the table that all nine of them are supposed to carry on as a group all the way to the cracks of doom. Now that is something that we may see changing, of course, as Tolkien continues to revise. Um, but I think that we can still see that. Now, of course, we know the breaking of the Fellowship is still going to be a, dr- a traumatic thing, right? Boromir's treachery makes it a traumatic thing. The uh, the way that they just lose Frodo, it wasn't. that's not how they drew it up, right? And, of course, the way they lose Merry and Pippin as well... Um, also sort of adds to the trauma there, right? But um, but nevertheless, it seems to me relatively clear um, that they're not planning. They, again, that it doesn't even seem like the job. Gimli and Legolas in particular, like, no, all four of them, really. I mean, it's like, they're, they're go- when they set out from Rivendell, their goal is, their destination is not Mount Doom. I can't see anything in the text that suggests that their destination is Mount Doom. Aragorn and Boromir's destination is Minas Tirith. Legolas and Gimli are going home, but they're escorting them most of the way down, right? So they're joining they're joining in with them on their journey. Nancy, I I don't know. See, Nancy says, you know, they intended to send Frodo into Mordor by himself. See, again, Nancy, I, I haven't seen that. I don't see, like... I haven't seen a passage where that's explicitly said. Like, okay, and the plan is, Frodo, you go off on your own. Except that Galadriel moment where she is going to send Frodo and Sam off um, by themselves. Like, that's plan A, right? Um, So, uh, yeah. I mean, that seems to be pretty much the plan. Then the breaking comes through the treachery of Boromir. The, The treachery of Boromir throws a wrench in it, not in the sense that it creates a totally new situation. Frodo and Sam traveling alone to Mordor doesn't seem to be like an unforeseen situation. It just wasn't supposed to happen that way. Right. And the trauma is it it separates Frodo and Sam, right? Sam has to follow along behind. And that's where the, uh, the problem there really, uh, uh, really comes in. Now, Brian asks, is Goadriel's opinion about the Fellowship colored by the loss of Gandalf? Yeah, Brian, I do think she's she is responding to that. But, Brian, wouldn't it seem puzzling? I mean, if they've lost Gandalf, right? Uh, what's she going to say? Like, okay, well, if Gandalf were here, all nine of you would keep going. But since we've lost Gandalf, ah, forget it. Let's just send six of you home and we'll send the, just the two on, right? I, I mean, uh, the loss of Gandalf shouldn't lead then as a logical consequence to the decision 
to deplete their support even further, right? I mean, I agree, it's definitely involved, but I don't think that she's like, ah, well, Gandalf's gone, forget it. Let's just pack it in, right? Everybody go home. Um, it's not exactly that way. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. Um, yes, now let's see. Um, Veronica, I'm looking here. Um Yes, okay, Veronica, you're referring to earlier in this passage, his own plan, that is Ingold's, a.k.a. Aragorn's plan, um, was to have gone to Minas Tirith, but now that Gandalf was lost, he felt that he could not abandon Frodo if he could not be persuaded to come. Um, So, Veronica, he wants to persuade Frodo to come on with them to Minas Tirith, right? Um, Yes. Now, we we don't see Aragorn in the book doing that. We don't see Aragorn in the book wanting to persuade Frodo to come to Minas Tirith. Here he does. Right, um, he's not going to force him, and he'll go with him. Um, I take that as a as I will take that passage as a sign. No, I mean I take that as an indication that Plan A was possibly Gandalf going with them. Right, maybe Gandalf and Frodo and Sam were going to go, um, and so now Aragorn slash Ingold slash Elfstone thinks that he has to now take Gandalf's place. That's how I read that passage, um, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tony exactly was just asking that question. I don't know exactly what Gandalf's intention was, whether he was going to Mordor or to Gondor. Um, I'm not really, yeah, I'm not really sure of that. Now, I said that it seems to have been the original plan A, was for the Fellowship of the Ring to escort Frodo to Minas Tirith, and then from there, Frodo and Sam, likely, maybe with Gandalf, I don't know, are going to go off on their own. Um but it's equally clear, right, from those outlines that we saw before, that it was never the plan for that actually to happen. You know, Frodo was never going to get to Minas Tirith. Um, the plan of having him leave the company and originally run into Treebeard, right, and then we shift that and that becomes Merry and Pippin's job. Um, instead, he's going to now run off and Gollum is going to pursue him and everything. That was part of the outline as soon as he had an outline of how, it, for, you know, the ring was going to get to the cracks of doom, right? So... It's not that the original plan was for Frodo to get there, but the original proposition of the Fellowship of the Ring seemed to be to bring the party to Minas Tirith. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Aragolfenstone suggests Carita as a way to uh, refer to that character whose name is in such remarkable flux uh, during this time. Um Okay. Um, yeah, maybe Brian is suggesting, Brian following up his earlier comments, suggesting that, um, you know, Gandalf would likely have persuaded most of the Fellowship to go with them. Without him, they are more free to go their separate ways. That's possible. That's possible. Though, whatever the plans for that might have been, again, what seems to me clear is. When Galadriel says, hey, Legolas and Gimli, you know, we'll help escort you north, right? Neither one of them is like, no, oh, but wait, no, like, we can't leave the Fellowship. No, like, it's not, it's, it's not received as a change of plans, right? It's like, yeah, sure, yeah, we'll naturally, okay, yeah, we'll take off north from here. Bye, guys, right? Um, yeah, okay, Arthur, great point. Arthur is intrigued by the fact that... Uh, Boromir, 
here is referring to Sauron as the Lord, um, which uh, Arthur is sort of wondering, is this, is this a red flag? You know, is this like a bad guy alert? Like, you know, warning, Boromir has been corrupted. Um, I don't think so. I think, Arthur, that Boromir is here using an elliptical phrase. Um, notice the two phrases that are emphasized, right? Destroy the ring and destroy the Lord. Um, I think he's merely using an elliptical phrase. He's, he's using the phrase, the Lord of the ring, right? Um, but he's using it elliptically. If you want to destroy the ring, then this. But if you wish to destroy the Lord, parentheses, of the ring, then do this, right? So it's an elliptical phrase, and he's leaving out the of the ring, but I think it's implied there. So I don't, th- I don't hear that as Boromir alluding to him like as if he were his own lord or something like that. Because um, in any case, that's not how the corruption of the ring would be manifested, right? The corruption of the ring is manifested in Boromir when he calls himself the lord, right? Not when he starts showing an, a, a sort of an, an allegiance towards Sauron, right? Um, so, so yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's. Um, uh, I, I think it's a uh, an elliptical phrase in that in that sense. The Lord of the Rings, um, the Lord of the Ring, rather. Um, yeah, Matthew's wondering if it has uh, just a hint of the "He who must not be named" element that we will see later uh, articulated in Gondor. Possibly, possibly. Um, again, I think it's because even then, like they wouldn't just call him the Lord. Right, they would call him the Dark Lord or something like that, uh, uh, Arthur. Exactly as you say, um, but I don't think um, they wouldn't just call him the Lord. But they might—they would call him the Lord of the Ring, uh, conceivably. So that's again, that's how I understand that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a great point, Brian. Brian is pointing out. How earlier in like, at the Council of Elrond, Aragorn seemed to be a lot more plus-minus towards towards Minas Tirith, towards Ondor, right? Um, that is, he wasn't like two thumbs up about uh, heading out, right? Uh, about 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 going there. Um, so Brian is suggesting that perhaps Aragorn, or what are we what are we calling him? Uh, uh, Carita, uh, Eric Golfinstone, uh, is, uh, is thinking, is, you know, is moving basically towards the return of the king role. Maybe, you know, his, his not only resolution to go to Minas Tirith, but desire here. I mean, it's the word here is desire to go to Minas Tirith. Um, I can agree, Brian, I don't recall him expressing this kind of desire earlier on. So is this, at least a sort of a hint towards um, the, you know, that coming into shape a little bit more? You know, is this at least a hint towards um, Aragorn um, desiring to return and, and you know, reestablish a connection with the people of Ondor? Perhaps, perhaps we can see it moving in this way. It's hard for me to tell just from that, but but I think it it could be an indicator that um, things are sort of pointing in that direction a little bit more. All right, I'm not moving too fast so far. <laughs> okay, now this is a fun passage, right? Here is that swiftly rejected um, 
but really intriguing first draft of the gift to Gimli from, from Goadriel, right? And what gift would a dwarf ask of elves, said the lady to Gimli. None, lady, answered Gimli. It is enough for me to have seen the lady of the Galadrim and known her graciousness. I will treasure the memory of her words at our first meeting. Rejected but not struck out as soon as written, Hear, all you elves, said the lady, turning to those about her, and say not that dwarves are all rough and ungracious, grasping at gifts, and something I have heard it said that dwarves are open-handed to receive and count their words when they give thanks. So anyway, so that's the part that's rejected. It is well that those about me should hear your fair words, said Goadriel, taking it a second time. And may they never again say that dwarves are grasping and ungracious. So we've moved to the wording of the final text now. Let this small token be given as a sign that goodwill may be remade between dwarves and elves if better days should come. She put her hand to her throat and unclasped a brooch and gave it to Gimli. On it was an emerald of deep green set in gold. It, it, I will set it near my heart, he said, bowing to the floor, and Elfstone shall be the name of honor, shall be a name of honor in my kin forever, and like a leaf amid gold. All right. So the Elfstone, the green gem that she takes from her throat, is originally in this very first uh, instance the gift for. Gimli. Now, this is, of course, made the more remarkable by the fact that Elfstone was one of those names that he was considering using for Aragorn all the way through, right? That he was going to, his real name was going to be Elfstone. Um, so, like, he's going to get an Elfstone, and Gimli's going to take the name Elfstone uh, into his family. Personally, I don't find this all that odd at all, actually. Um, in fact, I think of, of, of everything in here, that's the least strange thing to me about this scene. Because, like, yes, on the one hand, he was considering using Elfstone as Aragorn's name, but on the other hand, he was also considering not using it as Aragorn's name. I mean, we see him calling him Aragorn, calling him Ingold, uh, and, uh, and also calling him Elfstone. The fact that, to me, it seems like a no-brainer, right? Uh, that is, it seems a no-brainer that if Tolkien is going to decide not to use Elfstone as the name for Aragorn, that he's totally going to use that name for something else, right? He's not just going to pitch it. That's not how Tolkien rolls, usually. I mean, um, very rarely does he just kind of pitch something out entirely, even when it's quite an odd name, right? You know, like, for instance, um, the name... Uh, the name Bladorthin, Gandalf's original name, the 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 original name of the wizard in The Hobbit, right? Who was named Bladorthin all the way through in the first draft of The Hobbit, all the way through Lake Town. He was named um, Bladorthin um, before the merciful change of his name from Bladorthin to Gandalf. Um, but of course, Bladorthin is still in The Hobbit. Do you remember? Blad- Do you remember Bladorthin in The Hobbit? This is a serious Easter egg buried in The Hobbit, but he's there. Tolkien doesn't even, even that name, Tolkien didn't chuck. The Spears, James, exactly, you've got it. When they're touring in chapter 13, when they're touring um, um, uh, the the Dragon's Treasure, right? Um, when the, when uh, Bilbo and the dwarves go down into the Horde after, in Not at Home, um, there's a set of spears that were made for the warriors of King Bladorthin, but they were never delivered, right? Um, exactly, exactly. Um, 
So, uh, yes, his thrice-forged spears, Josiah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so even, even names like that, Tolkien rarely just chucks them. Uh, so he, he, he's, he's, as I've said before, he's very conservative in these ways. He, he doesn't throw stuff away. He, he recycles, uh, reuse and recycle is definitely Tolkien's motto when it comes to, uh, his ideas in those, in those ways. So he's thrown around Elfstone enough that it's a, it's clear somebody's going to be Elfstone, right? So the idea, so I take it that when he wrote this passage, this was clearly in one of those moods when, when he had decided either on Aragorn or Ingold uh, for that character, Elfstone was out. So he's like, heck yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to keep Elfstone as this name of honor within Gimli's family, right? So that's, so that's cool. Um, well, you know, um, that passes, right? He decides, of course, to shift that back around and decides, hey, why choose, right? Let's name him Aragorn, but let's also call him Elfstone. Let's uh, accept, let's do that in Quenya. Let's, and Elessar, of course, is the name uh, that he gets. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, Tony, I don't think anyone ever did call for the backstory of King Bladorthin like they did with Queen Beruthiel. But then again, the reference to King Bladorthin is much less tantalizing than the reference to the cats of Queen Beruthiel, right? I mean, that that simile that Aragorn pulls out in Moria, right? He is as, uh, uh, he is as, 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 as likely to find his way home in a black night as the cats of Queen Beruthiel. Like, there's obviously a story behind that, right? Like, who is Queen Beruthiel? Why does she have cats? And why are her cats especially likely to find their way home in a black night, right? So, um, so yeah, it doesn't really beg for explanation in the same way as Queen Beruthiel, but uh, yes, Arthur says, the last children of Tevildo to trouble this unhappy world. Uh, it is nice to think that the cats of Queen Beruthiel, the cats of Queen Beruthiel are to Tevildo as Shelob is to, uh, is to Ungoliant, right? Um, but um, anyway, yeah. Okay. Now, <laughs> Karita points out, Tar doesn't get reused, you'll note. Well, Karina, yes and no, right? Uh, I mean, it, it's that element is used all the time in people's names, right? I mean, it means king, right? So, you know, like every Numenorean king is named Tar, right? Tar Palantir, you know, Tar, El, Tar Aldarion, right? They all get the Tar hyphenated at the beginning of their name. So uh, it gets around. It gets around. Yeah, James was just pointing that same thing out about the prefix of the kings of Numenor. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Karina still refuses to accept uh, the uh, the the Elvish explanation. I I hear you. I I get it. I know. Um, and you're right, Tony. Aragorn will eventually become Tar Lesar as well. So there you are. See, Karina, Aragorn is going to be named Tar too eventually. So it's all good. Okay, anyway, sorry. So back to Gimli and his gift. So uh, Gimli's going to receive the Elfstone. One of the things, and it's a really minor element of this passage, but it's another thing that I think is really cool, um, really cool in the category of sort of seeing how Tolkien's mind works, right? Let this small token be given as a sign that goodwill may be remade between dwarves and elves if better days should come, right? Galadriel says that to Gimli when she bestows her gift on him originally, 
right? But you'll remember in the published Fellowship of the Ring when it's strands of her hair that Gimli is receiving, not by her suggestion, but by his request, right? Um, That sentiment is part of Gimli's statement. When she asks him in the published Fellowship of the Ring, what would you do with such a gift? He says, treasure it, lady, right? And when he describes how he's going to treasure it, you know, he goes on to emphasize that it will be a token of goodwill, right? Um, It's Gimli who foresees a future in which elves and dwarves... um, that in which goodwill might be reestablished between elves and dwarf, dwarves, and he takes this this artifact, this heirloom, right, that he is going to make out of the hairs that she gives him, um, as a symbol of that hope for future goodwill. So here we have the gift of Galadriel serving as a kind of a bridge, as a kind of a a, a peace token, right? You know, she's reaching out to Gimli and saying. I want to show you, I want to be the generous elf queen reaching out in fellowship to say, let's, you know, the dwarves and the elves can be friends, right? Um, uh, But Gimli is the one who's going to do that much more, um, much more uh, um, proactively. Uh, in the later versions. And I think that it's, it's neat to see, right? That, that element, right? That little nugget, it's not going to go away. Um, it seems to be, therefore, I think we can say, one of the core elements of this whole interaction from the beginning. So, like, what is the Gimli-Galadriel relationship about, right? What is the significance of that relationship in Tolkien's mind? Well, the one element which is really persistent throughout, even though it shifts around in interesting ways, right, that one element of this relationship as a symbol, a token, a uh, first step on the path towards this reconciliation between dwarves and elves. That's, a, a re- you know, the, sort of this really essential point there. Um, yeah. <laughs> Arthur suggests that, of course, since Gladriel's already been talking about elves fading, that, uh, you know, the... Uh, Goodwill may be remade bet- between dwarves and elves if better days should come. Sounds like a sucker bet. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Not quite as bad as that, I think. The the sentiment is still a good one, but uh, I hear you. I hear you. Um, yes. Yes. Um, yeah, now, Brian, I agree that the focus as the story develops seems to be more on Gimli's relationship with Galadriel and friendship with Legolas, uh, rather than some bigger picture change in the relationship between elves and dwarves. Yes, though I think it always is designed to point to that, right? Um, I think it's it's designed to suggest that, um, that is, Gimli's friendship with Legolas and reverence for Galadriel, I think, are always supposed to be an indicator or, or a sort of a... Um, uh, not a foreshadowing, because it's it's not a foreshadowing. It is an example of it, right? A foretaste, that's what I mean. Yes, it is a foretaste of, you know, the sort of a larger amendment of that relationship that is to come. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, see, sorry, my apologies to those of you who are listening on Facebook. I apologize for the audio. I'm totally trying to work on this. I don't know uh, exactly how to make that happen. But I'm trying. I'm working on some things, and I'll keep working on it. Um, okay. 
Uh, so let's keep going. I was really interested in this. Here is the gift of Celeborn to the leader of your company, she said to Elfstone, changed to Trotter, and gave him a sheath that had been made to fit his sword. It was overlaid with a tracery of flowers and leaves, wrought of silver and gold, and on it were set in runes formed of many gems the name Branding and the lineage of the sword. The blade that is drawn from this sheath shall not be stained or broken even in defeat, she said. Elfstone is your name, Eldamir, in the language of your fathers of old, and it is a fair name. I will add this gift of my own to match it. She put her hand to her throat, and unclasped from a fine chain a gem that hung before her breast. It was a stone of clear green, set in a band of silver. All growing things that you look at through this, she said, you will see as they were in their youth and in their spring. It is a gift that blends joys and sorrow, yet many things that now appear loathly shall seem otherwise to you hereafter. Okay, so... The Elfstone. We've restored the Elfstone, both the name and the thing, uh, to Aragorn. Right. Um... Is he named Aragorn here? Eh, he's Elfstone, he's Trotter. Uh, who knows? Anyway, the point is, to me, the most interesting element of this passage is this indicator of the power that the Elfstone has. Now, those of you who remember, remember we did Unfinished Tales. Um, gosh, that was a long time ago now, right? It was one of the first elections we had. Um, it was like the second election we had or something pretty close to that. Um, way back spring of 2014, wasn't it? Long time ago now. But anyway, we did Unfinished Tales, and it was awesome. Um, and in the Unfinished Tales, we looked at the the description at Tolkien's discussion of the Alessar, right? This is a, an idea that he expanded and connected back more intimately now so to the First Age stuff, so that the this green stone that uh, Aragorn is given is related to a green stone which was forged in Gondolin and, and was a really important healing artifact and all these other things, right? Um, and a lot of that sounds like um, Tolkien, you know, one of the things that Tolkien did so much of, right, after the the publication of The Lord of the Rings, as he kept writing these things, sort of developing the backstories, you know, he came up with all this extra stuff that he hadn't thought of at the time. Um, this stuff is not alluded to, that is, the power of the Elfstone is not alluded to in the published text. He, he, he's going to cut this out, right, of the published text. There's no indicator that the gift of the green gem to Aragorn is anything but symbolic in the published text. Um, I don't see any evidence... Okay, I see only one hint that the green stone that Aragorn has has any powers of its own, has any virtue of its own, as Tolkien would say, um, other than as a symbol, right? And that one moment, you may remember, is when he holds it up, when they see a green flash of light from a distance and they know that Aragorn has held up his green stone when they say goodbye to him in many partings, right? That's the only thing I can think of in the published text that gives any hint that there's anything special, or as the hobbits would say, magic, about the, uh, uh, the Elfstone, right? About the, about the green gem that he receives from Galadriel. Here, we're told that it is, it does have elvish virtue, and it's, and we're told exactly what that virtue is, and it's a fascinating virtue. It, 
doesn't give him any power, right? It doesn't, it doesn't uh, enable him to do anything other than to look at things, look at growing things, so it's not inanimate things, right? So he can look at living things, and when he looks at them through the gem, he will see them as they were in their youth and in their spring, a gift which brings joy, which blends joy and sorrow. So it's, um, you're right, Kimber, it is the ultimate tool in stopping decay and the passage of time, or at least the perception of it, right? It doesn't actually stop, it doesn't affect the things. It just enables you to see them, right? So that it's like an illusion, in a sense, or it gives you a vision of what these things were in their youth, um James the um the uh, the note oh shoot I'm forgetting now spent two classes on the errantry stuff and I've already forgotten The green gem is in errantry from the beginning um something in the errantry hero's armor is made of emerald from the very first version on um it was his helmet, it was his sword. Um, upon his breast an emerald, of course, is there. But the reference, James, to that being the suggestion of Trotter, right? Um, that Trotter's contribution to the composition of the poem was th- to make sure that a green gem was included in it. I'm pretty sure that's not there. Because, of course, in the errantry version that we were looking at, like the, this at this stage of the um, Rivendell story. Trotter is actually wrote most of it. Um, and Bilbo, Bilbo's contribution was, was comparatively small. The shift to the published text where Bilbo says, actually, it was all mine. Um, Aragorn only just made sure I included a green stone. I, I, I don't know why, right? That's later. We don't get that later. But I, I so I know that that part is later. I can't remember if the green stone was mentioned. So somebody can go back to the, uh, go back to the uh, errantry chapter and look that up to see if when the elves, when he's talking to the elf, or no, when he's talking to Frodo about the about the composition, when Frodo says, "I'm not going to guess," um, if there's any reference to the green stone there, I don't think so. Um, yes, Josiah, um, you're very right. Um, it's a vision. It's only a vision. But it is a vision with power. I, I, I will uh, acknowledge that distinction. When I say it has no power, I mean it doesn't actually change the thing, right? It doesn't preserve... It doesn't have the power to preserve other things and to keep them unstained and uncorrupted by time, right? What it does is it, does, it, it provides a change to you, exactly as you emphasized, Josiah. I think that's very important. Um, Many things that now appear loathly shall seem otherwise to you hereafter. The point of the gift, the point of the virtue of the stone, is to affect the the mind and heart and understanding of the holder of the stone. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, John asks, does it sound like something Galadriel made, or did her ring Im- um, you know, imbue the stone with the power of seeing through time? I mean, we don't know if her ring is involved. Does Galadriel make the stone? I'm going to say yes. Um, oh, we, well, okay. 
I'll hedge a little bit more safely and say, we're given no reason to think she hasn't, right? Notice the sheath is the gift from Celeborn. The gift from her is the stone, right? And the gift from her, it, it, you can tell it's from her because, first of all, she's like, and here's from Celeborn, and here's from me, right? But also the way that she unclasps, unclasps it from her own throat shows this is hers, right? Um, now, she doesn't explicitly say, I made it, but she also doesn't say somebody else made it either, right? So um, I think we are at least welcome to, if not actively invited to, see this as her her, her make. Um, it, yeah, several of you are suggesting uh, uh, some really fun uh, Elfstone experiments in Middle-earth. Right, like um, James is wondering, what would Treebeard look like seen through <laughs> seen through the LSR? Right, would he look different? Would you see him as an Enting, or would he just look the same? Right, um, uh, Josiah asks, what about Old Man Willow? What would he look like? Right, what would Tom Bombadil look like? I'm thinking, um, Josiah, um, I'm thinking Tom Bombadil is probably wearing. I'm going to go with a blue jacket. And yellow boots. I think Tom Bombadil's going to look exactly the same. Uh, you know, maybe you could get Treebeard the Enting, and how cute would that be, right? To see Treebeard as a wee Enting, except I don't think he was ever an Enting. But whatever. Uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it would be, that would be adorable. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you're right, I guess, Gar- I guess, Don, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 kind of, uh, kind of anticipated that particular piece of adorable there, didn't they? Um, <laughs> I am Treebeard, says Yana, thinking the same way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, all right. Let's continue powering on here. So we saw the way, last time, we saw the way in which the rise of Galadriel, the ascension of Galadriel, uh, leads Tolkien, or sort of, to say it in the words that Tolkien would use instead of me joking around about it, the discovery of Goadriel and her true nature and significance led him to the immediate rethinking of some pretty major ring of power history and led him to at least flirt with the idea of the almost inconceivable shift of replacing the Silmarils with the rings of power, uh, as we saw last time when I had to, like, stop and fan myself after thinking about that. Um, but anyway, um, uh, okay. Oh, thank you, Lynn. I forgot the spear. Uh, Lynn points out that the emerald was in four places in, uh, in errantry poem history. It was his spear first, then his sword, then his helm, then upon his breast. Uh, thanks, Lynn. I did forget the spear. Um, anyway, okay. Um, here's, so here's Tolkien uh, thinking about ultimate destinies, and we start with the rings of power, him continuing to think through, okay, now that we have this new trajectory for the rings of power, where are we going with this? The three rings are to be freed, not destroyed, by the destruction of the one. Sauron cannot arise again in person, only work through men. But Lorien is saved, and Rivendell, and the Havens, until they grow weary, and until men of the east eat up the world. Then Goadriel and Elrond will sail away, but Frodo saves the rings. Okay, hanging, stopping there for a second. Okay, so he wants the rings to be freed and not destroyed by the destruction of the one. So he's decided, 
Now, this is a change. Remember, Galadriel's already delivered the speech where she says to Frodo, so you see how your coming is as the, the, the footsteps of doom, right? One way or the other, it's all over with us, right? Either Sauron's going to recover the ring and we will be exposed, um, or the ring is going to pass away and therefore the power of the three are going to pass away. That was already there. He's re- this is a reconsideration of that now. He's like, no, no, hang on. Maybe the rings will be freed, right? Um, so the, the three rings are going are gonna to survive. So this is him jacking up the status of the three rings a little bit more, right? And absolutely, John, I was going to say exactly the same thing. John, Cal- John Caldwell points out that the phrasing here suggests pretty strongly that the third ring is in the havens. Yeah, you notice that? It doesn't, he doesn't explicitly say it. Um, but several of you have been asking in previous classes, do we have any hints yet that Gandalf has a ring of power? And I keep saying I have not seen any indication yet that Gandalf does. Any hints that would even be consistent with that? Now we have a clear hint that points in the other direction, right? Um, it's not explicitly stated here, but in the context of talking about the three rings, he mentions when the three rings are freed, then Lorien, Rivendell, and the Havens are saved. And that does imp- imply pretty heavily that Galadriel, Elrond, and Cirdan the Shipwright have the three elvish rings. Um, yes, exactly. And of course, we know that is where he's going to end up, right? Until Cirdan hands off his ring to Gandalf, but we have no reason to think the handoff to the handoff to Gandalf, <laughs> the Gandalf handoff, uh, has come yet. Um, so I don't think so. Um, the note about Sauron, right? So when the ring is destroyed, Sauron cannot rise again in person, only work through men. Is it just me? Is it too cynical of me to think or to ask the question, is Tolkien thinking about a sequel there? Because that leaves the door open, doesn't it? Like, he can't rise in person, but he can work through men, right? Um, And if not a sequel, and I'm not thinking, I'm not accusing him of a kind of a crass commercialism, right, to try to make a a sequel just in order to keep the thing going and keep the gravy train running, because, of course, it was not a gravy train in Tolkien's life. That would be pretty anachronistic to suspect. But, but... um, it would not at all be strange for Tolkien to be thinking in this kind of typological slash generational way. That is, to be thinking about the progression going off towards the future, right? Um, By progression, I mean Melkor, Sauron, what happens next, right? Right? Because what happens next is not evil is eradicated from the world, right? Because what's the ultimate destiny? Modern world, right? How do we get to the modern world? Remember that, in a sense, one of the places where Tolkien's literary career began, I mean, one of the, like, the point, in a sense, this is a crude way of saying it, right? But in a sense, the point of the Book of Lost Tales is to explain the current situation. How, why are things the way they are in England? 
in modern England. That is to say, why do we have stories about fairies, but no fairies, or very elusive fairies, or fairies only occasionally may be seen by some people under certain circumstances, um, but yet, and stories of fairies being here more, but we, but that, that it doesn't happen anymore, right? Where have the fairies gone? They were here, but they're not here. We have stories that suggest they were here, but now they're not here. How did this happen, right? We live in a world that is dominated by men, but in which there still remains all of these memories and stories of the elves, right? How did that happen? How did we get here? The Book of Lost Tales explains how we got here, even down to the formation of the island of England and an explanation of why England is a specially elvish place, right? That's what the Book of Lost Tales provides us, right? Um, In a sense, we can see uh, the... I can see a hint of that in the Sauron cannot arise again in person, only work through men, right? Maybe we could nominate one or two men through whom he might have been working over the course of history, right? Um, So, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, Nicole, when I say, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I say that uh, reaching the modern world is the ultimate destiny, I don't mean he believes that to be the the point, like the the climax, the acme, the the glorious conclusion. I just mean it's a thing that happens, right? That that is to say, his stories were always meant to be associated with our world, and it's not just a totally different world, like. This is just a fictional... Tolkien's stories have never took place in a fictional universe. They always took place in the distant history of our universe, and this is why they tie back in to our story, or at least that was the initial concept. Um, As his stories develop, that's... I mean, by the time we get to the published Lord of the Rings, that's a less prevalent factor, certainly. So yeah, so when I say, Nicole, that it's moving, uh, moving to the modern world, I only mean... We're there. <laughs> and it's, we got here somehow, right? So how did we get here exactly? Um, and that's not to say that it's that 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 this is a good thing or a positive result. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, yes, Rachel. Rachel says that Sauron, uh, in this context, makes her think of Satan and, and demonic influence. Absolutely, Rachel. Yes, that is to say. Um, does that mean that Sauron becomes the Satan of the Bible? No, not exactly like that. But that is to say that in the in the in the the Dominion of Men world, right, which is like the world that our modern world will eventually get to, right? Um, evil does still operate in the world, but it doesn't take form like the Dark Lord in the East anymore, right? How does it work? It works through men. So Rachel. I would think of it more as like, a, not a symbol of, though, but a, sort of a parallel to it, even sort of an instance of, right? Um, that same kind of idea of um, sort of demonic uh, influences. Yes, Tony, originally Tolkien's stories were very much designed to be explanatory myths. Very much so. Um, and, and again, I can, I can t- to me, I, I hear an echo of that. I hear a hint of that in Sauron cannot arise again in person, only work through men, right? Um, 
And here's uh, here's mind blowing thought for the day, Tony. Who would be the number one candidate for like the man through whom Sauron is at work in the modern world in the mid forties, <laughs> right? So, Tony, wouldn't it be hilarious, right, if, like, Hitler is actually under the influence, like, the implication that Hitler is under the influence of Sauron? All that, like, Sauron, Sauron is an allegory of Hitler stuff. Uh, for it to be like, no, 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 no. It's not an allegory. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's literally true, right? Sauron is literally influencing Hitler. That's way cooler, actually. Um Exactly. Arthur says, no, Hitler is an allegory of Sauron. Exactly. See, there you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so no, it's all good. It's <laughs> I, I love that, that completion of the circle. Right. Um, uh, that's, uh, that's lovely. Anyhow. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's, uh, let's push along, push along as Gandalf said to bingo. Um, Frodo, let's okay, move on to the latter stuff. Frodo saves the Shire, and Merry and Pippin become important. Sack, not Sam, obviously. Sackville Bagginses are chucked out, become potboys at Bree. Sam's casket restores trees. When old, hang on a second now. Um, did you, you, you know, many of you guys have been doing the history of Middle Earth with me for a while now. Did that line, Sam's casket restores trees, make you do the same double take it made me do? Right? I'm like, restore... Hang on, wait. Right, yeah, Arthur, you're thinking exactly the same thing. I was like, what are we talking about? You remember those references at the end of the Book of Lost Tales to the restoration of the magic sun? Right? That's what I was totally thinking. I'm like, the tree... Capital T? Trees? Sam's gonna... Like the trees of Valinor, like this, right? Laurelin and 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 Telperion are gonna get Sam's. Oh come on, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Um, uh, yeah, I don't think so. I can't imagine that that's what he was thinking. That Sam triumphantly returns to Valinor and uh, uses the dirt given to him by Galadriel to restore the capital T trees of Valinor. As awesome as that would be, right? Um. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, no, I mean, I assume it's, it's that this is a foreseeing of what Sam, of course, is always going to do with the, with the casket. Um, that is that the whole point of him getting that is that he's going to restore trees in the Shire. Um, but we've not gotten any reference to trees being cut down in the Shire, right? We don't, we don't know that that's good. There's restores trees, capital T, right? I, I don't, um, I don't know. I don't know. Brianna, I know he does go on the boat into the West eventually, right? Um, and I'd like to think that, uh, uh, you know, Sam could, uh, you know, be of the party at least looking on, you know, when the trees are going to be restored later on. But, um, uh, but yeah, Josiah, I know, right? Sam, hero of the ages, rekindler of the light of the trees. Uh, that would be absolutely fantastic. But, um, but remember, I mean, so... When we're, I mean, several of you are saying things like, but wouldn't it be that, you know, aren't we talking about the trees cut down by Saruman? Saruman's cutting down trees? That happens? Scouring of the Shire? Remember, we don't have any hint of that yet. Um, we saw some pretty clear evidence that Tolkien doesn't have any idea what he was going to do with the Shire yet. There's going to be something, right? 
but we don't really yet know what it is. So, so yeah, I think that uh, it's 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 still. I I don't. I'm I'm not really trying to suggest that I think that Tolkien is planning for him to restore the trees of Valinor. I just I just kind of had that couldn't resist thinking that as I was reading that and uh, was. Um, uh, was look yeah we did get the visions in the mirror but they didn't include that they didn't include the 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 cutting down of trees in the Shire yet um, yeah um, anyway several of you are very interested however in the uh, vindictive Tony I think that's a very good word for it the vindictive ending um, for the Sackville Bagginses. Um uh, Stephen says that he doesn't he doesn't find the chucking out of the Sackville Baggins is nearly as satisfying um, as essentially the reconciliation with Lobelia. I, I totally agree, Stephen. What ends up happening um, with the Sackville Baggins? Well, in a sense, it's like a compromise, right? Instead of just chucking all, out all of the Sackville Bagginses, um, instead he redeems one and kills the other one, right? So there you go. You kind of have your cake and eat it too when it comes to retribution against Sackville Baggins is there. But there's something... You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the end of a Disney movie, like an old Disney movie. Like, um, like the scene at the end of the, the Disney Robin Hood film, you know, where you get, uh, uh, you know, the sheriff of Nottingham and, uh, and, uh, his, you know, uh, breaking rocks, right. In their prison uniforms. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of like that, right? Like this is a, a sort of a, a, a comeuppance, but a nonviolent comeuppance, uh, for the bad guys, uh, is given there at the end. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, James, I'm not suggesting there's no scouring at all. I'm just saying we can't proceed as if the things that are going to happen in the scouring of the Shire are definitely planned, because we, we don't have definite plans. We already did see Lotho Sackville Baggins buying up property and stuff, so we know that he's involved, that he's up to no good. Um, but exactly the shape that's going to be in its connection with Saruman is all not clear yet at all, especially the connection with Saruman. Um, remember in the original outline, um, well, that, you know, that, that, that outline that we did a little while back, um, Gandalf's confrontation with Saruman comes after the destruction of the ring, right? So it's the Isengard, he's still in Isengard and Gandalf comes and confronts him and turns him out then, right? So there is no, no connection between Saruman and the Shire yet, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tara thinks that Tolkien is rolling in his grave at that comparison. Come on, man. I understand. I get it. I understand. Uh, but you know what? Like, I know Tolkien is not a fan of Disney, but you know what? The parallels there. Hey, what am I supposed to? What am I supposed to do? Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Okay. When old, Fro- Sam and Frodo set sail to the to Island of West and seek Bilbo finishes the story. Out of gratitude, the elves adopt them and give them an island. 
At the head of the page is written, Saruman becomes a wandering conjurer and trickster. Okay. I don't know, Stephen, if this is meant to imply that um, Bilbo doesn't go into the West or not. Um, yeah, Yana, exactly. I was thinking a, a conjurer of cheap tricks there at the end as well, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tony says he kind of makes Saruman into Loki. Yeah, kind of. Kind of. Um, uh, I'm not sure I follow the island in the west thing. They give them an island. So, to island of west. Does that mean Elvenholm? Is that where they go? Probably. That's the island of west. Right? I mean, this is a hasty outline. I assume that's the island he's talking about, especially since, yeah, Karita, since the elves are adopting them, you'd think they'd be going home to the elves, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, Stephen, yeah, exactly. Stephen Cover points out, so they get, like, Numenor Mark II, right? Numenor Mark II goes to the halfling ring bearers, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know, James, if they, like, what's up with that island? I, I don't really know what's up with that island, right? That, you know, James asks, is, there, is, any, is anybody else there? Right? They, they get a private island? Um, <laughs> like, yes, Arthur Harrow is uh, reminding us that Sancho Panza got an island in Don Quixote, right? Yeah, that's, I, Arthur, that's what he wanted from the beginning, right? That he became Don Quixote's squire in order to get an island, right? That's what he, that's when, when, when am I going to get my island? He was saying for like 500 pages. Um, yeah. Lynn, I agree. They're getting their own island separate from the elves. That's does seem pretty clear. Um, but yeah, can, can anybody else come to visit? I don't really know. Um, yeah. It seems to be giving them a destination in uh, in the West... They can't permanently live in Elven Home, I guess. But um, uh, yeah, um, it's it's a little it's a little unclear. Yeah, <laughs> Frodopia, <laughs> Veronica calls it. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, yeah, well, Nicole, oh, that seems a little harsh, right? I, I I hear what you're saying. That it seems like a it seems like a mixed message on the part of the elves. Like we're adopting you, right? But you have to live on your own island. You can't live with us, right? Right. So we're adopting you at a distance, right? <laughs> Welcome to the family. Live over there, please, right? I, I understand. It does seem a little bit odd, um, but I, I don't think it's designed to be off uh, off uh, putting on the part of the elves. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, 
It's like the kids' table, James, exactly. It's just like the kids' table. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, Okay, all right, let's keep going. So, side note, as we jump on my notes from page 286 to page 325, I'm not going to talk much about the map chapter. The reason I'm not going to talk much about the map chapter especially, you know, when we've done map chapters in the past, there have been sometimes passages that I've drawn out that where I think we can see some interesting development in Tolkien's thought there. I didn't, I'm not going to do much really with the map chapter. In the, I mean, it's very interesting. Um, my biggest problem with it, and I totally get why, I mean, no, I'm not trying to c- criticize Christopher. Um but he's kind of put a bunch of development in one place. You know, this was like, and this is the chapter where we're going to talk about the development of the map. But as you'll notice pretty quickly, he starts going to include later material into this, right? So there's a, there's a pretty big shift from the material right now, you know, contemporaneous with the stuff that we're reading currently and stuff that's really part of future versions. And so for me, that kind of, it was hard for me to really talk about the map chapter content in the context of our other discussion. Um, so at least for now, I've decided to, uh, I've, so I, I've decided to, to, to mostly skip it. So I'm sorry. If any, now, if any of you have some questions or things that you really want to, if you're bitterly disappointed that I'm not talking about the maps and there's some things that you, who you really think are awesome or that you have questions about that you would like to hear me talk about about the maps, let me know. Send me an email. Let me know. I, I will happily go back and do map stuff. I don't want to, I don't want to leave anybody hanging on map stuff, but, um, but then again, yeah, exactly, James. That's how I felt about it, too. He says, I love the chapter, but it's hard to discuss. Yeah, that was, I mean, I was reading through and I'm like, this is really cool, but I don't know what to do with it exactly. And again, I was having a hard time fitting it in with the rest of this stuff. So like I said, happy to go back if um, if if you guys want to. But And then, of course, the next chapter is more outlines and projections, which are like my favorite thing ever. So um, that made it the easier to come to that decision. So, moving ahead. Back to the breaking of the fellowship as we continue to refine that. Now, the location of the breaking of the fellowship has been shifted, right? It's been shifted from the angle uh, at the southern tip of Lothlorien down to the general Rauros Falls region, right? Um, but it's still shifting about around Rauros, right? It's sometimes on the island in the middle, the island which will later be called Talbrendir, but isn't named that yet. Um, that's where the original camp was. They talked about shifting it over to the east side. They talked about, and then of course, eventually, as you know, it's going to be on Parthgallon, which is over on the western bank. Um, but um, he's still, uh, this is still when it's in the middle, I think. Um, though he was going back and forth between the middle and the east pretty quickly here. As Frodo is sitting alone on hilltop, Boromir comes suddenly up and stands looking at him. Frodo is suddenly aware, as if some unfriendly thing is looking at him behind, he turns and sees only Boromir, smiling with a friendly face. I feared for you, said Boromir, with only little Sam. It is ill to be alone on the east side of the river. Also, my heart is heavy, and I wish to take a while with you. All right, so they they are on the east side here now. Okay, good. Um... While there are so many, all speech becomes a debate without end in the conflict of doubting wills. 
My heart too is heavy, said Frodo, for I feel that here doubts must be resolved, and I foresee the breaking up of our fair company, and that is a grief to me. Many griefs we have had, said Boromir, and fell silent. There was no sound, only the cold rustle of the chill east wind in the withered heather. Frodo shivered. Suddenly Boromir spoke again. It is a small thing that lies so heavy on our hearts and confuses our purposes, said Boromir. Okay, one thing. The emphasis here um, on the friendliness of Boromir, I think, is important. It, on the one hand, it emphasizes the treachery, right? Um, but, but I think it's I think it's not just that. The other thing that I think is cool um, about this moment in this draft, Boromir, you'll remember, the last couple times we've seen outlines of or, or little partial drafts of the Breaking of the Fellowship scene, Boromir was kind of pure bad guy, right? You know, he was just like, he's, he's over the edge. And uh, uh, gone over to the Black Hats completely. Um, here, I think we can see Tolkien pushing back the ultimate fall of Boromir. Um, he's not yet completely fallen. Um, and I think that that, that uh, uh, sort of disjunction between friendliness and unfriendliness shows that there's still a division in Boromir's heart right now. Um, some of these lines, the lines that Boromir gets that he won't get later on, things like, many griefs we have had, many griefs have we had, right? That's a really, that's a really interesting line. It's a really weighty line for Boromir. Um, many griefs have we had. This acknowledgement of what they've shared, but also you can see how this is kind of the springboard for Boromir, of like, this must stop. Yes, we have had many griefs. It's time to put an end to that, right? We've had too many griefs. Let's not add more, right? You can see that all kind of building up in Boromir. I really like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Veronica, yeah, what thing does Frodo sense? Um, some unfriendly thing. That is a really interesting phrase, right? Um you know, he feels that he's being sneaked up on by some unfriendly thing. Now, remember, Veronica, the other thing, remember how much more prominent Gollum has been in the story. Remember, it's Gollum sneaking up behind him that he sees in the mirror, right? He's just in the mirror of Galadriel's scene. Gollum sneaking up on him from behind. So Frodo is suddenly aware as if some unfriendly thing is looking at him behind. That, I think, is supposed to be... Um, I think that we as readers are supposed to be responding to that, saying, oh, it's Gollum! Oh, it's just Boromir, right? Phew, I thought it was Gollum, right? I, we got good reason to think it's Gollum there. Uh, so that, I think that's, um, I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, let's see. Um, The other thing, Frodo's comments about the breaking up of the company is interesting, because this suggests to me the beginning of the, that, what I said at the very beginning of class about the company always being scheduled to break up somewhere around now, just not quite exactly in this way. 
I wonder if that's changing here. Um, if we are seeing here an indication that Tolkien is thinking otherwise, wanting to make the fellowship, the breaking of the fellowship, more, I don't know, sort of cataclysmic than it was, a, really a, 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 a breaking not just of the, um, not just of the the, um, the ultimate goal, but of you know sort of premature to and in a different manner from the original plan, um, but really breaking that plan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Brianna says it, it would be really interesting if Boromir and his treachery actually saved the ring from Gollum, right, from being captured by Gollum. Um, yeah, well, of course, Brianna, there's a juxtaposition of them, right? Um, I mean, in, in a sense, it's a kind of a hint. It's kind of a foreshadowing, right? It's not Gollum. It's Boromir. Oh, that's different. Or is it? <laughs> right? It kind of works in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, James and Arthur both object to Sam being referred to as Little Sam. Uh... I don't know. I mean, compared to Boromir, he's kind of little. There's not too much to say about that, right? Um, and it seems to set up Boromir's point, right? Boromir's point is, look, if we're going to go about doing this, if we're going to go about fight, you know, opposing the Dark Lord, can we use some brains in doing this, right? So sending his ring into his domain, stupid idea, right? Instead of doing that, let's use it against him. Let's take this weapon and use it, you know, use it to overcome our enemy. That's the smart money's on that, right? I mean, that's ultimately it's going to be at least part of Boromir's argument. And I think that's the point that he's made. Is, oh, if we just send it off with you and little Sam, come on now. Um, well, I'm not sure, Arthur, that I'd go so far as calling that an evil attitude. Uh, it's, uh, um, I mean, remember, ultimately, in the published Council of Elrond, Gandalf is going to say, let folly be our cloak, right? Like, it seems like a foolish thing to do. That it, And so, therefore, the opposite plan would be wise, wouldn't it? Right? So, um, there is wisdom, practical wisdom, in Boromir's suggestion, the ring's greatest temptations are generally plausible, right? And have that kind of compelling nature to it. Um, what you don't like is the condescending tone? Yeah. Right. Okay. I guess I can see that. Um I don't know, it just does seem to me kind of fair, though. I mean, again, compared to Boromir, he is kind of little. Um, and yes, you're right, Veronica, Boromir is implying that the ring is clouding Frodo's judgment. Yes, it's a little thing that lies heavily on our hearts. A small thing lies heavily on our hearts and confuses our purposes. Um, and that's kind of neat, right? Um, I'm under influ- the, the influence of the ring? No, but maybe you are, right? Exactly. Okay. My favorite moment from Boromir's uh, 
ring-induced monologue here in this early draft. "'As you will, I care not,' said Boromir. "'Yet I will confess that it is of the ring that I wish to speak. "'Yet hidden or revealed, I would wish now to speak to you of the ring?' "'Anyway, Boromir says that Elrond, etc., are all foolish. "'It is mad not to use the power and methods of the enemy, ruthless.' Fearless. Remember, this is just an outline, by the way, right? Tolkien is jotting stuff down. Some of this dialogue is coming in full formed, and he's he's going into it. But this is still this is still not even really a full draft, right? This is just Tolkien getting down these ideas. Many elves, half elves, and wizards might be corrupted by it. A large percentage of the world's half elves <laughs> might be corrupted. By, sorry, I apologize. Um, many elves, half-elves, and wizards might be corrupted by it, but not so a true man. Those who deal in magic will use it for hidden power, each to his kind. You, Frodo, for instance, being a hobbit and desiring peace, you use it for invisibility. Look what a warrior could do. Think what I, or Aragorn if you will, could do. How he would fare among the enemy and drive the Black Riders. It would give power of command." And yet Elrond tells us not only to throw it away and destroy it, that is understandable, though not to my mind wise, since I have pondered on it by night on our journey, but what a way to walk into the enemy's net and offer him every chance of recapturing it! Frodo is obdurate. Okay. Um, I am really interested by this particular construction. Notice... Almost all of those elements are there in Boromir's final speech, right? Um, you know, he's like this, you know, elves and half-elves and wizards, right? They might be corrupted in these ways, right? But true men won't. Um, and the ring would give me power of command, right? All those things are still there uh, in, the, in the final version. Um, but here, the central construction of his whole speech here is an argument, he's making an argument about how the ring works, which we don't get in the published text. Now, of course, that might mean that Tolkien has changed his mind, that, and the ring doesn't work that way anymore in the published text, but that's not always, the, as Christopher is very quick to point out often, um, the fact that an idea gets removed doesn't necessarily mean that Tolkien's changed his mind, he just might have decided not to talk about it in that way or at that moment, Right? So what Boromir says is the power of the ring gives each power according to their kind. Right? Now remember, Gandalf says a similar thing about the ring in the published text. But anyway, okay. Um, uh, Elves, half-elves, and wizards would be corrupted by it. Why? Not because they're weaker, but because of what they do. Those who deal in magic use it for hidden power, right? What are they into? Those elves, half-elves, and wizards, what are they into? Hidden power. That's what they're into, right? They have this magic, and they, like, keep it concealed and don't even show it and make fireworks out of it and other useful kinds of things. No, they they deal with hidden power, right? So for those who deal in hidden power, guess what the ring is going to give them? More hidden power. And guess what's that? what that's going to do? Corrupt them, Right? So it's just, it's not that they're weaker. It's that the the kind of thing the ring is going to do for them, bad news, right? What does it do for hobbits? Not much. Well, what are hobbits? Hobbits are peaceful and stealthy, right? So what does it give them? Power of invisibility, right? 
It's a hobbit thing. Um, what would it do for a warrior? Right? To a warrior, it would give the power of command. I would be able to command the Black Riders. I would be able to... I mean, that is like to have authority over them, to drive them before me. Um, because of who I am. Right? <laughs> Mungli is suggesting if the Ring of Power really um, uh, gave the Hobbit power, the Hobbit's powers after their kind, it would also give them beer. Um, and that seems a very good argument, Mungli. I think, uh, I think I can agree with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, now, James, I agree with you. James points out that this does seem to be a little specific for Boromir in terms of his knowledge of the ring, uh, even given that he's been pondering it by night, right? I mean, yeah, Boromir could ponder it for as many nights as he would like, and I'm not really sure that that would necessarily mean that he would come up with all of this quite specific. In, I mean, where did he get all this lore, right? Um, so he's just worked, the, he's just, puzzled this out in his own head, has he? Uh, through his nocturnal ponderings um, about the nature of the ring. Um, there's no reason to necessarily think that it's right. Uh, exactly. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting, Josiah. Josiah points out the sort of slip that Boromir makes here, right? He says, okay, they're the wizards and elves, right? Hidden power and magic. Hobbits, peacefulness and stealth, right? To remain safe and to be able to escape. Um, What would it give to a warrior? Well, to a warrior, it would give him prowess in battle, right? But Josiah notices how quickly Boromir slips from the power of a warrior to the power of a ruler, right? Um, He he upgrades himself from warrior to king pretty darn quickly uh, there in that progression, and I agree, Josiah. I think that's exactly where we can see that sort of slippage happening there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, see, Brian, yes, you're right that he accuses the elves and wizards of wanting hidden power, but he himself is motivated by power. Yeah, but not hidden power. That's the point, right? Good, honest, open power. It's it's clean, Right. I mean, like, to be a, a rightful, benevolent lord, right? To be a king, benevolent and wise, right? That's, that's good. There's nothing bad. That, that's not corrupting, right? That kind of power, that's a, a good, wholesome, open, natural power. Not the hidden, mystical, magical thing that wizards and elves do, right? That's the, that stuff will, that stuff will mess you up, right? But, uh, you know, a little honest, uh, little honest authority, you know, like a good king. It's all good, right? Um, yeah, good. Um, all right. Let's keep moving. Come at least, uh, come at least to Minas Tirith, said Boromir. He laid his hand on Frodo's shoulder in friendly fashion, but Frodo felt his arm tremble as if with suppressed excitement. Frodo stepped away and stood further off. "'Why are you so unfriendly?' said Boromir. "'I am a valiant man, and true,' he said, "'and I give you my word that I would not keep it. "'Would not, that is, I should say, if you would lend it to me. "'Just to make trial.' <laughs> I love that. Like, I, I, I wouldn't keep it. I mean, if, if, if you lend it to me. I'm not assuming, or anything, or going to take it, or something. Uh, right. 
I just, I'm going to uh, make trial of the point. No, no, said Frodo, added, it is mine alone by fate to bear. Boromir gets more angry, and so more incautious, or actually evil purpose now only begins to grow in him. You are foolish, he cried, doing yourself to death and ruining our cause, yet the ring is not yours save by chance. It might as well have been Aragorn's, or mine. Give it to me. Then you will be rid of it, and of all responsibility. You would be free, cunningly. You can lay the blame on me, if you will, saying that I was too strong and took it by force. For I am too strong for you, Frodo, he said. And now an ugly look had come suddenly over his fair and pleasant face. He got to his feet and sprang at Frodo. Um, can I say that I think that it is really neat... These these passages are so cool. These like hybrid passages, which are like half outline and half full narrative, are so cool. Because you see what we basically get? We basically get like Tolkien doing commentary on his own prose as he's going through. Right? It's it's like um, we're getting like the backstage cues. That's so neat. Uh, that like um, and, and that one is so weighty. Right or actual or actually, evil purpose only now begins to grow in him, and we see that seems to be the direction he's taking it. Um, and now an ugly look had come suddenly over his fair and pleasant face. Right when he was smiling in a friendly fashion earlier on, he wasn't faking it. He was really being friendly or meaning to be friendly. But at this point in their conversation, he has now finally been overcome by evil purpose. Um, this new version of the Breaking of the Fellowship has Boromir actually intending to be friendly to Frodo, right? That's what is in his mind. He's not setting out to betray him. This is not his um, scheme to capture the ring, right? Um, What we're getting here is Boromir's fall in real time. And this is the moment. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Matthew says it's like he doesn't realize he can take it by force until he says it out loud. Yes, exactly. Or, Matthew, it's like that the thoughts grow and they come out of his mouth and that's, and, and that's when it becomes real to him, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh Good, yeah, Veronica points out the growth of his paranoia as well, that he believes that Frodo will keep the ring from himself, for himself, rather. Yes, yes. Um, Yeah, so this is a really neat development. Now notice, we're still not getting redeemed Boromir, right? We're still a ways away from that. The projections from here that we can see right away suggest we're still, Boromir's still going to betray them. Boromir's going to live... And he's going to get to Minas Tirith, and he's going to betray, and he's going to go over to Saruman. That stuff still seems to be on the books, right, at this point. Um, But certainly, I agree um, with what you were just suggesting, John uh, Caldwell, that that the the groundwork is laid for Boromir's redemption, I think, here. Um, Yeah, good. Okay. Frodo could do nothing else. He slipped the ring on and vanished among the rocks. 
Boromir cursed and groped among the rocks. Then suddenly the fit left him, and he wept. "'What folly possessed me?' he said. "'Come back, Frodo,' he called. "'Frodo, evil came into my heart, but I have put it away.' But Frodo was now frightened, and he hid until Boromir went back to camp. Standing on rocks he saw nothing about him but a grey formless mist, and far away, yet black and clear and hard, the mountains of Mordor. The fire seemed very red. Fell voices in air, feels eyes searching, and though it does not find him, he feels its attention is suddenly arrested by himself. Okay. Um, Boromir takes it back, right? He doesn't... He's still going to all the projections suggest he's not Tolkien's not changed his mind yet about Boromir's betrayal, but we do have uh, the evil fit passing. And Josiah, great point. Josiah points out that remember what Boromir says in the published text is, um, "A madness took me, but it has passed." Right? That's what he calls out in the published Fellowship of the Ring. Um, Josiah argues, and I agree, I have put it away. Evil came into my heart, but I have put it away, is stronger. It makes him more of an agent, right? He's not just saying, the fit took me. I was a victim of the fit, but, but it's gone, right? And I am no longer its victim, right? It's, or it's not victimizing me anymore at this moment, right? Uh, from, I have put it aside. I am the agent, and I am turning away from that evil, um, now again, Josiah, I don't think he's gonna, right? I mean, I think, you know, Boromir still seems, uh, the plan still seems to be that he's going to betray them in Minas Tirith. Um, so this is only a temporary reprieve, but I agree that that's really interesting language on Boromir's part. Um, the confrontation with Sauron, right, is there and is the important element, but it's simpler, Right? What we get here is the connection between Frodo and Sauron. There's not the, like, the eye is searching and is going to locate you exactly. He fails to locate him. He doesn't know where he is. Um, is that suggesting that that's Frodo's fault? I mean, like, that that's down to Frodo? I'm thinking that, because remember, we just had that passage with Galadriel, Right? about how Sauron suspects, but she is able to repel his mind so that he doesn't. Is that the implication here? That the the eye is searching for him, but it doesn't... Although so its attention is arrested by Frodo, it's focused on Frodo, but it can't pin down his location? Doesn't that sound like what Goadriel did? I wonder... Hmm. Anyway. Okay. What happens next? Consternation. The hunt. Some scour the island. This is when now the breaking has shifted back to the future tall Brendir. Uh, some scour the island, but Sam discovers the fact that a boat is missing. Has Frodo gone east or west? Trotter decides that they cannot hope to recapture Frodo against his will, but they must follow him if they can. Which way? Or make island inaccessible, steep shores. Black birds circle high above its tall cliffs and central summit. Distant noise of the falls of Tentruinel. 
They camp on West Shore. Hence, when Frodo is lost, they all go after him. Thus, Pippin and Merry get separated. Sam sits alone and so discovers missing boat. He takes another and goes after Frodo. Against this bracketed passage is written, yes. Okay, so this is where Parth Gallen gets the thumbs up, right? They're going to be on the Western Shore. Um, it's all about the practicality of getting the right people lost in the right directions, Right, Mary and Pippin are going to get lost on the West Shore, and that's how they're going to end up um, with Treebeard. Uh, Frodo has got to take a boat and take off, and Sam is going to be the one who discovers the boat missing and is going to go after him. Um, It says here they all go after him, but that doesn't seem actually to happen. Um, So... I'm still a little confused about what the movements are here exactly, but um, but it's interesting how the shifting around of the camp is, is really all about, like, again, as I said, how do we get the right people lost in the correct directions? Now we've got Sam attempting to track Trodo, Frodo and failing, but running into Gollum, who's, all, who's tracking Frodo more successfully, and Sam tracking Gollum, who doesn't seem to care that Sam is tracking him because he's not bothered about Sam. Gollum was so intent on the trail, muttering to himself, Footsteps, Gollum sees them, and he smells them, Gollum is wary, that he does not seem aware of Sam's relatively clumsy efforts at stalking the stalker. It was near the evening of the second day when Frodo, every sense keyed up, becomes suddenly aware of footfalls. He puts on the ring, just like with Boromir, right? He puts on the ring, but Gollum comes up in circles near. To Frodo's great surprise, Sam appears. To the equal surprise of Sam and Gollum, Frodo suddenly takes off ring and stands before them. Gollum is the most surprised, for between Frodo and Sam he is overmatched. He cringes, for as ring-bearer Frodo has a power over him, though he is really an object of great hatred. Gollum pleads for forgiveness and promises help, and having nowhere else to turn, Frodo accepts. Gollum says he will lead them over he will lead them over to over the dead marshes to Kirith Ungol, chuckling to himself to think that this is just the way he would wish them to go. Alright. Um we see him sticking with the scene as he had outlined it before. I love this characterization of the scene. Um we've got Gollum and Sam, both of them kind of bumbling along on Frodo's trail. Sam, or Gollum, effectively tracking Frodo, but talking to himself so much he doesn't even really notice Sam following. Sam unable to follow uh, Frodo, but able to track Gollum because the guy's talking to himself constantly. And then Frodo popping into appearance before both of them and surprising the both of them um, when they're sneaking up. So there's a kind of comedy of errors element in this, which strikes a strange note to our ears, I think, who are used to the published text. But um, uh, but that scene sounds really dramatic. The scene of Frodo wearing the ring and then appearing before them and Gollum being very struck, right? Um, knowing that he's bested and knowing that he has to obey the master of the precious, right? Um And just begging and promising help, pleading for forgiveness and promising help. Um, But notice, of course, another important element, and again, this is consistent with the earlier outlines, 
Gollum is a bad egg from the beginning. Gollum is planning to betray them from the beginning. The way in which we're going to get in the published text, at least that potential for real reformation on Gollum's part, for real change, um, we're not there yet, right? Um, the heartbreaking scene when Gollum almost repents, we're, way, we're a ways away from that. Um, he's just manipulating them uh, from the very start here. I have to admit, I don't really understand, though he is really an object of great hatred. He cringes. He, Gollum, cringes. For as ring-bearer Frodo has a power over him, Gollum, though he, Gollum, is really an object of great hatred, whose hatred? Or is that last he in parentheses Frodo, though Frodo is really an object of great hatred? I think that's what it means. The pronouns, because it's just an outline, the pronouns are hard to follow. That's got to be Frodo. That makes sense if it's Frodo, right? He cringes. Frodo has power over Gollum, but Frodo is an object of great hatred for Gollum. I think that has to be what he means there. Not that Gollum is an object of great hatred for Frodo, even though all the recent he's have been Gollum. Yeah, probably. Okay. Dismay of the hunt at finding no trace of Frodo. Boromir, Legolas, Gimli, Trotter return to camp, only to find now that Sam also is missing, and Pippin and Merry as well. Trotter is overwhelmed with grief, thinking that he has failed in his charge as Gandalf's successor. He imagines that the hobbits are all together, and waits in camp until the morning. In the morning, no sign is found of them. The company is now broken. Trotter sees nothing for it but to go south to Minas Tirith with Boromir, but Legolas and Gimli have no further heart for the quest, and feel that already too many leagues are between them and their homes. They go north again, Legolas meaning to join the elves of Lothlorien for a while, Gimli hoping to get back to the mountain. Still, the fellowship, right? The breaking of the fellowship is more thorough. The fellowship, of course, is broken in two senses in the published book. Right, it's broken in the sense Boromir's betrayal breaks the the bond, right? The sort of the pact of the fellowship. It breaks the oath that Elrond encouraged them not to take at the beginning of their journey, right? Um, so the fellowship is broken in that way, and of course it's scattered in the sense that they're split up into three groups, four if you count the resurrected Gandalf, right? So um, it's broken in those two senses. Um, the fellowship in these original drafts, is broken much more thoroughly, much more sort of dismally, right? Like, it's it's over. It's like that the Fellowship of the Ring is done. Um, it has done everything that it can do, and, and everybody now just sort of go their own way, you know, just, just sort of goes their own way. Legolas and Gimli are like, all right, well, I guess our job is done. It was kind of anticlimactic where it ended, right? But... Let's go home. We're getting too far away from home anyway. Now, we know this isn't going to be the end for their story, right? In the outlines that we recently saw, Legolas and Gimli are going to run into Gandalf, and he's going to bring them back, right? So uh, we will get more Legolas and Gimli. But, you know, again, the fact that they're like, well, okay, fellowship's over. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Very different uh, from what we get later on. 
the that the way in which you know Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli as the last three of the Fellowship who are left there and unscattered and um, you know their resolution to stay together and you know pursue the orcs and to 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 try to rescue two others of their fellowship right there's a sense in which so the fellowship is broken but there's a sense in which it's not totally broken right um we still have some of them at least acting together in fellowship to help each other um so but here we're just we're we're, we're checking out of the hotel right it's it's done at this point um and Josiah, yes, Trotter's giving up on the hobbits is very striking here. Um, Trotter, Elfstone, Aragorn, Ingold is very, I want to say, helpless, right? Um, notice there's no, there isn't even, his skill as a tracker is right out, right? Like there's, how can he not track them? Right, that seems to be totally... Uh, we're not even thinking in that direction now. If anything, Josiah, that's what surprises me the most. Um, because he was, you know, wilderness savvy from the time they met him at Bree. That was one of the th- original things about him, even when he was a hobbit with wooden shoes. But um, he, you know, here he's like, well, they're gone. Where are they? Are they together or not? I don't know. Well, let's just forget it. Let's just go to Minas Tirith. It seems like an odd solution. Um, Josiah, the way that I read that is that the uh, the Trotter is overwhelmed with grief. That's a strong statement. Um, I mean, Aragorn in the published text is kind of down on himself, right? But it's not kind of down on himself. He is overwhelmed with grief. Trotter... Um, Trotter is much harder on himself here, and it seems to almost paralyze him. Like, he gives up. Um, so yes, Josiah Trotter is not yet Estelle. He's showing kind of the opposite of Estelle here. Um, and that's the really the biggest turnaround. Um, yeah, yeah. And Brian, I agree, Brian Dimmick is pointing out how, notice, we, we don't have an orc attack yet. No, it's just... People just scatter. So, without even the excuse of an orc attack to generate enough confusion to get people uh, away from Aragorn before he can track them and figure out where they are, um, it, it I agree, that sort of emphasizes it even more, right? Okay. Um, all right, we'll, we'll end there. We've, uh, we've done a lot tonight. Um, next time we will focus on the projection slash draft of Frodo and Sam uh, going to Mordor. Um, lots of really interesting stuff there, and then we'll move on. We're going we're gonna to continue in our, in our pattern of being less than one full class behind, uh, and so always starting at least to get to the, the correct day's reading. Um, we're hoping to, uh, uh, to, to continue with that next time. So, Thanks very much, everybody. I look forward to... Don't forget, next week is our, our special sort of finale within the campaign class. We'll be doing our drawing. Um, so please, if you, have had a, if you haven't had a chance to make your donation yet, please do signumuniversity.org slash donate. 
uh, to make your donation. Um, and if you have made a donation, thank you so much. And please don't forget to send an email to donate at signumu.org in order to be entered into our drawing for our fun prizes to thank you for your continued support of the Mythgard Academy. Thanks, everybody, and have a good night. See you guys next week. Bye.